Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. In the past two months, we've moved weapons and equipment to Ukraine at record speed. Drones, grenade launchers, machine guns. We're seeing this incredible historic flow of weapons coming into Ukraine. Do we have any sense as to where they're going? We don't know. There is really no information as to where they're going uh, at all. You know, all this stuff goes above the border, and then kind of like something happens, it kind of like 30% maybe reaches its final destination. 30%? Are you concerned about weapons getting in the wrong hands? I don't care at all whether that happens. What sort of a unit do you command? Can't say. Okay. You know, there are like power lords, uh, oligarchs, uh, political players. One of the biggest targets are convoys like this transporting weapons. Europeans had come to believe that that project of integration had effectively meant the banishment of armed force. All of a sudden, not far from the borders of the EU, was the most significant war since World War II. And those were scenes from the CBS documentary Arming Ukraine, revealing the 70% Western weaponry given to Ukraine that has simply disappeared, likely sold for profit on or off the secretive dark net. And due to its brutal honesty, rare for the corporate media, along with complaints from the Ukraine government, CBS removed the documentary, promising a whitewashed, censored version in the indefinite future. So in our Cancel Culture Uncancelled episode this week, the Arts Express Screening Room brings to you, in its full director's cut, Arming Ukraine. Stay tuned and all will be revealed. But first, Emil Hirsch, known throughout his career for seeking unconventional roles to play in movies, including real-life characters Houdini, Thoreau, and Jay Sebring in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the renowned hairdresser for the stars who was murdered by the Manson family. And in his latest film, fictional but not so far-fetched, the young actor plays, along with his girlfriend portrayed by Kate Bosworth, contestants signing up to win $5 million from an eccentric tycoon if they can survive 50 days under extreme regimented conditions in what is described in the film's title, as that sensory-deprived lockdown, The Immaculate Room. Arts Express spoke to Hirsch about how this story may reflect issues in the real world, including as yet another chapter in economic crisis cinema, the economic desperation of especially his millennial generation to survive, and increasing regimentation under this low-wage police state in progress and possibly a reflection as well of the film's South African outsider-looking-in perspective as someone born into that regimented, oppressive apartheid state. Hirsch also shares memories of starring in his first film as a teenager, The Dangerous Lives of Altar Boys, opposite Jodie Foster's, well, Scary Nun, and memories of Heath Ledger in Lords of Dogtown. First, some scenes from the Immaculate Room, then Emil Hirsch. Welcome. You have been chosen to spend 50 days in the Immaculate Room and will win $5 million by completing the task. Enjoy your stay in the Immaculate Room. It's like we're in a dream. It's a second chance for us, isn't it? We should just be grateful. That's it. Smells like nothing. So I guess this would be the master bedroom. Very white. This is your wake-up call. Why do you think he's doing all this? Professor Voyam. All anyone knows about him is that he's got more money than God and that he's intrigued by the human condition. It is midday. I hate that clock. It actually went backwards. Mikey? Michael! 
to get in here. They're just messing with us, right? I read that we can take a trade. Hey, so like what happens in here? Then she just walked out. <laughs> I did not know. This is gonna be fun. Good night. I don't think I can do this anymore. This is all a little ridiculous. What's going on here? Not everyone's so easily manipulated. Do not. No, 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 no. How far would you go? <laughs> I want to leave I'm you. I'm going to take care of you. <laughs> You're the one doing this. Love is the only real thing of value. Enjoy your stay. Hello. Hi, hello, and welcome to our show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. What was it about the Immaculate Room that got you inspired to be part of this film? Um, I really enjoyed the script. I thought it was a really well-written script by Makunda Duo. And I like the idea that this couple was challenged where would they stay in this room for 50 days and get $5 million or would they break? And I like I like thrillers that have to do with games. I really liked Squid Game a lot, and just the 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 rules and the game aspect. I always really liked, and I also liked the way that the characters were written. They're both very different characters, Kate and Mikey. And you know, Kate is more serious and subdued and controlling character, and Mikey is the more freewheeling happy-go-lucky guy who has these demons that he sort of hides. Um, and I I found the characters and the dialogue very well done and, and, and easy to say the lines in a way. And would you compare and contrast in any way your enthusiasm to come on board the Immaculate Room as an actor with your enthusiasm as your character Mike to live in the Immaculate Room? Yeah, I mean, there was a similar enthusiasm of I had wanting to play Mikey and Mikey going into the room, you know, just the enthusiasm of seeing what lies ahead and, and what um, what adventure there was to be had out of the project. I always have that kind of attitude. Now, the filmmaker Mukunda Michael DeWill is South African. So would you say there's anything unique he brings to this movie with an outsider looking in perspective? And also anything the director brings to the story culturally as a South African born into that rigidly controlled apartheid nation? I think in a way, um, you know, the film isn't really very America-centric, but I do think that Makunda, being a South African, you know, he he really also got involved with um, a lot of monk kind of lifestyle and living and kind of a very uh, Buddhist monk existence that he had for a long time. And I think that, that that aspect of Makunda was very unique and gave him a um, a very outsider's perspective on the kind of typical societal way that people live. Um, you know, Makunda has, you know, I think in a lot of those monk ways of living, you know, it's like your possessions don't matter, money has no value, um, you know, or no true value in terms of the soul, you know, a lot of those kind of spiritual monk teachings. And I think Makunda spent years exposing himself to those types of ideas and those teachings. Now, the historical moment of this story is also coming out at a time of economic crisis, hitting especially your millennial generation. Are there any thoughts you have about that connection, either personally or regarding this film, and in which the theme, the central driving force in the film, is young people desperate to do anything for money? The film's coming out at a uh, at a time of economic crisis for my millennial generation. Any connection? Um, so your question is, Is there? Uh, do you think that there's a connection between the film and the real world with the economic crisis? 
I don't know if it influenced the film because the, the, the script was written about two and a half years ago, although oh. I guess it's been an economic crisis for a little while. Yeah. Um, I, I think that, you know, to some degree, there's always an economic crisis depending where in the world you are. Um, it's just, it's always happening. I feel like with my generation now, it's, it's definitely, um, you know, I think that there's more and more people that are getting out of college and not able to get jobs and realizing that maybe their degrees don't matter as much. Um, a lot of people like that. And so there's a certain sense of panic where, you know, everyone's realizing that, oh, they all need jobs and jobs don't just like appear out of nowhere. So there's a certain amount of pressure to make money and, and be in the rat race, so to speak. And I think that, you know, one of the appeals of this film is the uh, the gaming idea of if you stay in the room for 50 days, you get this $5 million. Well, that seems like, it's like winning the lottery, you know, it could take care of all your problems. And I wanted to ask you, your first film, The Dangerous Lives of Altar Boys, which you starred in when you were just a teenager, is one of the best films ever about youth breaking all the usual stereotypes of youth in movies. What can you say about that experience and the experience of acting opposite Jodie Foster as that scary nun? About you, Mr. Gibney? something of the class gossip. Do you know anything about this? No, sister. Mr. Sullivan? I've never seen that before. Mr. Doyle? Frankly, this kind of crudity isn't really your style, was it? No, sister. Francis, do you know anything about our Saint Agatha? Yes, Father. Good. Tell us what you know. She was really good-looking, and she promised God she'd be a virgin. But then some guy wanted to marry her, and when she wouldn't, he stop stuck it. her in her brothel. Stop it. And then he cut her breasts off. I won't tolerate any more disrespect from you. Now, you confess. You tell us why you did this. Actually, I heard that he branded her before now he You hold your tongue, young man. You are on a terrible downward spiral. He sees in your heart. He knows that you do. <clears throat> Boys, church property was stolen and now apparently damaged. We had hoped to have the statue back by now. We expect it back immediately. We don't want to have to call the police. You're dismissed. Straight to classes. Yesterday, I asked you to find a practical use for your new measuring skills. Triangulation. Has everyone done their homework? Margie Flynn! We should do a story. The Atomic Trinity. If we're gonna have a story, then we've gotta have a bad guy. What is this place? This is my kingdom. I guess I've got a hell of a choice over. I don't believe there is a hell. She told me a secret. It's not a regular secret. You could never tell anyone. Anyone. You are on a terrible downward spiral. I fear for you. Is this supposed to be me? Do you think I'm crazy? <laughs> Can't do this without you. You with me here, altar boy? Oh, yeah. I had a wonderful time making that film. That was the first feature film that I had worked on. And um, I was 15 when we shot that movie, and I had a, just a wonderful experience making it. And um, it was a pretty long shoot. It was 30-something days, and everyone was really... Uh, that was an era where they almost would take... You know, if you were to shoot that movie these days, now... 
that would be like a 19 or 18 day shoot. These days, the shoots are much faster than they used to be. And that was probably like a 35 day shoot or something like that. Movies used to shoot a lot slower than they do now. Now they, they usually get them done much faster. Um, but I had a lot of fun making that film and I certainly learned a lot, you know, with each film I did, I learned a little bit more and, um, you know, uh, was kind of the first real filmmaking experience I had, um, making like a movie at least. And I certainly had incredibly talented people to work with, uh, you know, Kieran Culkin and Jenna Malone and Jodie Foster and Vincent D'Onofrio, you know, just an incredible group of actors. It was, it was awesome. I mean, I thought Jody was so cool and she was so good in the part and diabolical and, um, just really it was a it was really nice to see um you know an actor like of her caliber working um you know and able to kind of just see her and be influenced by her um you know at such a young age you know getting to act with you know someone like Jody who was so intelligent and and so talented um you know and especially when you're that super you know, beginning of your acting, you know, years, getting to kind of really have a front row seat to an actor of that caliber was really cool. Mm. I was saying, uh, yeah, you'd hope a little bit of her, like, magic actor pixie dust rubs off onto you. (laughs) And what about the challenges for you of playing real people in movies, young Houdini in Houdini, Clyde and Barney and Clyde, the voice of Thoreau in Walden, and Jay Sebring in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, a renowned Hollywood hairdresser murdered by the Manson family. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's always, um, it's really nice playing real life people, uh, you know, for getting to learn a little bit about the characters that you've that you're playing in films and there's like a little bit of extra research that gets done and you're kind of like discovering a little bit about the past as you go a lot of the times when you're making something like that. And getting back to the Immaculate Room, what can you say about Ashley Green turning up and without giving too much away, seemingly out of nowhere, and even wandering in from one of her vampire movies? Yeah, Ashley was really cool and just had a total perfect quality for the character and she was really good in it and um yeah and she was in those twilight movies that were huge (laughs) and would you say the film draws any comparisons with actors in your own observations and actors being pressured to sometimes do outlandish things for money I mean, actors have definitely been doing outlandish things for money since the dawn of time. <laughs> kind of goes hand in hand with being an actor. Um, we've definitely, I mean, I don't know if there's anything new to be said in that regard, just because that's just part of the job. I remember there's some David Mamet book called True and False, and he's talking about actors in the book, and he says actors historically were kind of this cursed people and when they died they would be buried with a stake through their heart so that they couldn't be resurrected from the dead because they just didn't trust them at all Uh and you once said quote james dean taught me not to speed river phoenix taught me not to do speed and marlon brando taught me to slow down on the cheeseburgers please elaborate you know i think I I might have said that when I was like 13 or 14. <laughs> it's too bad that that quote has survived as long as it has. Oh, it follows you around. And what are your memories of Heath Ledger and co-starring with him in Lords of Dogtown? Heath was awesome. Just a really talented, funny guy. Uh, um you know, super inventive as an actor and and just constantly uh, just a very entertaining dude. Endlessly entertaining. Okay, thank you so much, Emil Hirsch, for calling into the show. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Bye-bye. And The Immaculate Room is out now in release. 
something happening here What it is ain't exactly clear There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I got to beware I think it's time we stop Children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down This is Jim Messina And I wanted to let you know That I'm going to give a shout out here For Arts Express There's bad lines being drawn Nobody's right If everybody's wrong Young people speaking their minds Are getting so much resistance From behind the time we stop Hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going Coming up next in our Cancel Culture Uncancelled episode this week, Arming Ukraine, the director's cut, so to speak. First, some background information and analysis is provided by journalist and political analyst Caitlin Johnstone in her latest installment of Going Rogue, presented by Tim Foley, then Arming Ukraine. CBS wanted to do critical reporting on Ukraine's government. But Ukraine's government said no. Following objections from the Ukrainian government, CBS News has removed a short documentary which had reported concerns from numerous sources that a large amount of the supplies being sent to Ukraine aren't making it to the front lines. The Ukrainian government has listed its objections to the report on a government website, naming Ukrainian officials who objected to it and explaining why each of the CBS News sources it dislikes should be discounted. The CBS News article about the documentary was renamed from Why Military Aid to Ukraine Doesn't Always Get to the Front Lines, quote, like 30% of it reaches its final destination, end quote, to the far milder Why Military Aid in Ukraine May Not Always Get to the Front Lines. An editor's note on the new version of the article explicitly admits to taking advisement on its changes from the Ukrainian government, reading as follows. This article has been updated to reflect changes since the CBS Reports documentary Arming Ukraine was filmed, and the documentary is also being updated. Jonas Oman says the delivery has significantly improved since filming with CBS in late April. The government of Ukraine notes that U.S. Defense Attaché Brigadier General Garrick M. Harmon arrived in Kyiv in August of 2022 for arms control and monitoring, end quote. CBS News does not say why it has taken so long for this report to come out, why it didn't check to see if anything had changed in the last few months during a rapidly unfolding war before releasing its report, or why it felt its claims were good enough to air before Kyiv raised its objections but not after. It was supportive of Ukraine and very oppositional to Russia, and simply featured a number of sources saying that they had reason to believe a lot of the military supplies being sent to Ukraine aren't getting where they're supposed to go. The original article quotes the aforementioned Jonas Oman as follows, quote, All this stuff goes across the border and then something happens, kind of like 30% of it reaches its final destination, said Jonas Oman, founder of and CEO of Blue Yellow, a Lithuania-based organization that has been meeting with and supplying frontline units with military aid in Ukraine since the start of the conflict with Russia-backed separatists in 2014. 30 to 40 percent, that's my estimation, he said in April of this year. End quote. The U.S. has sent tens of thousands of anti-aircraft and anti-armor systems, artillery rounds, hundreds of artillery systems, switchblade armored drones, and tens of millions of rounds of small arms ammunition, CBS's Adam Yamaguchi tells us. But in a conflict where front lines are scattered and conditions change without warning, not all of those supplies reach their destination. Some also reported weapons are being hoarded, or worse, fear they are being disappeared into the black market, an industry that has thrived under corruption in post-Soviet Ukraine. I can tell you unarguably that on the front line units, these things are not getting there. 
the Mozart Group's Andy Milburn says, Drones, switchblades, IFAX, they're not, all right? Body armor, helmets, you name it. Is it safe to characterize this as a bit of a black hole? Yamaguchi asked him, perhaps in reference to an April report from CNN, whose source said that the equipment that's being sent drops into a big black hole, and you have almost no sense of it at all after a short period of time? I suppose if you don't have visibility of where this stuff is going, and if you're asking that question, then it would appear that it's a black hole, yeah, Milburn replied. We don't know, Amnesty International's Donatella Rivera tells Yamaguchi when asked if it's known where the weapons are being sent to Ukraine are going. There is really no information as to where they're going at all, Rivera says. What is more worrying is that at least some of the countries that are sending weapons do not seem to think that it is their responsibility to put in place a very robust oversight mechanism to ensure that they know how they're being used today, but also how they might and will be used tomorrow. A news outlet pulling a report because their own government didn't like it would be a scandalous breach of journalistic ethics. A news outlet pulling a report because a foreign government didn't like it is even more so. We've already seen that the Western media will uncritically report literally any claim made by the government of Ukraine in bizarre instances like the report that Russia was firing rockets at a nuclear power plant it had already captured, or its regurgitation of claims that Russians are raping babies to death from a Ukrainian official who ended up getting fired for making unevidenced claims about rape. Now, not only will Western media outlets uncritically report any claim the Ukrainian government makes, they will also retract claims of their own when the Ukrainian government tells them to. It's not just commentators like me who see the Western press as propagandists. That's how they see themselves. If you think it's your job to always report information that helps one side of a war and always omit information which might hinder it, then you have given yourself the role of propagandist. You might not call yourself that, but that's what you are by any reasonable definition of that word. And a great many Western Zelenskyites honestly see this as the media's role as well. They'll angrily decry anyone who inserts skepticism of the U.S. Empire's narratives about Ukraine into mainstream consciousness. But then they'll also yell at you if you say we're not being told the truth about Ukraine. They demand to be lied to, and call you a liar if you say that means we're being lied to. You can't have it both ways. Either you want the mass media to serve as war propagandists, or you want them to tell the truth. You cannot hold both of these positions simultaneously. They are mutually exclusive. And many actually want the former. This can't lead anywhere good. In the past two months, we've moved weapons and equipment to Ukraine at record speed. Drones, grenade launchers, machine guns. We're seeing this incredible historic flow of weapons coming into Ukraine. Do we have any sense as to where they're going? We don't know. There is really no information as to where they're going uh, at all. You know, all this stuff goes across the border, and then kind of like something happens, it kind of like you. 30% maybe reaches its final destination. 30%? Are you concerned about weapons getting in the wrong hands? I don't care at all whether that happens. What sort of a unit do you command? Can't say. Okay. You know, there are like power lords, uh, oligarchs, uh, political players. One of the biggest targets are convoys like this transporting weapons. Europeans had come to believe that that project of integration had effectively meant the banishment of armed force. All of a sudden, not far from the borders of the EU, was the most significant war since World War II. Exercise happening in Lithuania, which is effectively the eastern flank of the entire alliance, effectively the front line. 
And exercises like this have been happening for quite some time, but have taken on much greater urgency. Outside the borders of Ukraine, NATO countries are on alert as they strike a fragile balance between providing support to Ukraine and preventing a full-scale war between Russia and NATO. My intent for today is twofold. First, to see the successful integration of the German reinforcement troops we sent in March, based on the, of course, war in, in Ukraine. For me, it's absolutely clear Germany will remain committed, not only in the EFP business, but also in, in NATO. It is, admittedly feels like a little bit of a dog and pony show, almost like a, an open house or a showcase of all the weapons that are being purchased and, and sent into Ukraine. I think that we're arguably at the most dangerous point since the Cuban Missile Crisis. NATO is not directly at war with Russia, but a nuclear-armed Russia is at war with a NATO-armed Ukraine. And it's conceivable that that war could widen. We don't know. But this is a hot war, not a cold war. And that's why it makes it so dangerous. Ukraine and Russia have been at war since 2014, when Russia occupied Crimea, and Russia-backed separatists occupied the Donbas region of Ukraine. But the full-blown invasion in 2022 and the images of Russian tanks en route to the nation's capital of Kyiv shook the West to its core and galvanized the U.S. and Europe to ship an unprecedented level of military aid to Ukraine. Yeah. So how long have you been moving supplies into country? Since summer 2014. <clears throat> this whole thing, if you do it like according to the book, it takes four or five days. And I mean, we don't have that time. I mean, yeah, we go now. Welcome to Ukraine. Yeah. Jonas Oman and his team work for the non-governmental organization Blue Yellow. While weapons are pouring in, frontline fighters also need supplies like body armor, helmets, and other tactical gear. NGOs like Blue Yellow help fill that gap. We're just a few feet from the border. As soon as we came into the country, the convoy is starting um, a series of drop-offs. This moment, there's a huge lack of, of body armor. Yeah, we're handing out like maybe 20, 30, 50. They will just distribute it in their networks. Different so units. Yeah. Frontline soldiers don't have body armor? Yeah. yeah, 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 sure. For a country trying to defend itself against a much better funded and equipped aggressor, Crews like Jonas's have become vital to navigating the tangle of supply lines to reach the patchwork of what are sometimes improvised military units. You as an NGO, you have to toe the line very carefully. You can yeah. only move non-lethal aid. Yes. We are cooperating with units who rely to some extent on, on you know, official support and they get weapons, etc. But they also rely on us for other things. Cars, drones, optics, Etc. Etc. The Russians, in some ways, see this as a war with the West. Ukraine is uh, a proxy for the West, but at the same time, the Russians have been as careful as NATO in not widening the war. They have not chosen to strike against arms depots in Poland, through which arms are flowing into Ukraine. And that is not surprising in the nuclear era, because everybody knows that if you have a military conflict between two sides, both of which have nuclear weapons, you never know where the war is going to go. Jonas, can you help us with 10 night vision devices for a frontline combat unit defending Kharkiv? Go there and see what we can do. One of the many challenges to getting logistics to the front line are the many roadblocks, damaged bridges, collapsed bridges, and having to go off-road and sort of improvise your way through the country. Короче, короче, вот для тебя. Стёрзов что-то есть. 
This woman, who asked that her name be withheld, is part of a network of civilian volunteers who are aiding in the war effort and act as links between groups like Jonas's and local soldiers. How critical are these supplies? Від цього від цієї допомоги залежить життя наших бійців, тому що вони коли працюють тепловізором, вони вночі бачать цілі, вони бачать супротивника, коли працюють квадрокоптери, вони бачать місце розташування противника, вони бачать скільки зброї, яка зброя готується до наступу. Тому це ну від цього залежить життя. In addition to go-betweens, Jonas also delivers directly to armed units requesting supplemental aid. We've just been escorted to a, a compound, a private compound, and Jonas and his team were delivering some aid to this unit. We can't show any faces um, because of the highly secretive nature of what these guys do. Oh, wow. What, what sort of a unit do you command? Can't say. Okay. Can you uh, walk me through some of what you have here? And then what do you have over here? You're having to rely on on groups like Jonas's to get some of the non-lethal aid. Есть форма, есть автомат, есть пушки, снаряды и так далее. Но, допустим, есть автомат. Вот к нему нужен коллиматор. In a war where essentially all able-bodied Ukrainian men under 60 join the fight, weapons and supplies are making their way to almost anyone willing and able to use them. This is a war that has tapped into uh, a lot of emotions. And that's why you have Americans, Europeans, others, who are joining the fight. Many of them are ex-military. And so, you, you know, you have to show a certain amount of respect for those people who are volunteering, they're putting their lives at risk to help Ukraine defend its own freedom and sovereignty. Is there a downside to this? Yes, because once you get these paramilitary units, it, it's a more dangerous world where governments don't have control of what's happening on the battlefield. So right now we get weapons, uh, get our armor and uh, we'll see, we'll see what the, uh, we need for this day. This commander, known as the Greek, and his unit of former civilian and paramilitary fighters will escort Jonas and his crew to the front line. His unit has the firepower to defend the convoy should they encounter ground forces. Before the convoy gets underway, they rendezvous with another crew to combine supplies headed to the front line. As we follow supply lines, both non-lethal aid and lethal aid, they kind of converge here very, very close to the front. Now this unit gets most of its non-lethal aid from, from Jonas and his team. And um, what we're seeing is uh, all this non-lethal aid, sitting right atop some of the most effective weapons of this war. This is our weapons that came the Soviet Union. the
And the commander of this unit told us that uh, if they stand still for five minutes, even less, they will start to come under fire. They've got to keep moving at all times, and one of the biggest targets are convoys like this transporting weapons. Straight ahead. What did you say? I said straight ahead. Seems there are checkpoints now, like every half kilometer to a kilometer. Wow, that was close. Как то увидели нас? Понял, дружи? Actually, see the artillery. Hearing a lot of incoming and outgoing shelling. Drones overhead. This isn't much cover, but it's kind of all we got here. Только що ми їхали в небі був орлан. Вони побачили точку, де ми знаходимося, побачили перехрестя, де зупиняються, і туди відпрацювали артилерію. Слава Богу, що не попали. Ми проїхали далі. Остальна наша група поїхала вперед, і там їх теж обстріляли. Вони вернулись назад, їх опять обстріляли, вони пробили колесо. Зараз він насить, ми його зараз не бачимо. Шум, його не чути. Нам треба такі прибори, які показують, де летить БПЛА. Unable to move any further and out of sight of Russian drones, both the Greek and Jonas pull back without delivering their supplies. We had been traveling in a convoy of four earlier when we encountered the shelling. We have to assume that the Russian drones had eyes on all four. So we're not traveling at fours anymore until we are well out of range. The derailing of this supply run is one of the many ways desperately needed aid doesn't always make it to the soldiers who need it. The U.S. has sent tens of thousands of anti-aircraft and anti-armor systems, artillery rounds, hundreds of artillery systems, switchblade armored drones, and tens of millions of rounds of small arms ammunition. But in a conflict where front lines are scattered and conditions change without warning, not all of those supplies reach their destination. Some also reported weapons are being hoarded, or worse, fear that they are disappearing into the black market an industry that has thrived under corruption in post-Soviet Ukraine. Anybody want to refill here? Uh, more? More, yeah, some more. Uh, that's for me? Okay, cool. So you're cutting through bureaucracy, you're cutting through we're going, we're going, we're going around it. I mean, that's like, you know, we are masters of, you know, the... No, going around. And what is the corruption? Is it like playing favorites? Is it? You know, there are like power lords, uh, oligarchs, uh, political players. The system itself is, you know, we are the armed forces of Ukraine. So if the security forces want to, well, yeah, the Americans escape to us. So you've got to figure it out. And it's like, it's kind of like power games all day long, basically. Yeah. And so eventually people, you know, they, they need the stuff or they are being used for so they go to us. You're gonna see one of the elite drone teams in Ukraine. And they requested something from you? They requested a drone like uh, to the fair amount of $200,000 and we bought it for them. And there it is. I see it. Nice. It's great. Mission successfully uploaded. Modern drones have proven to be the most successful tool in breaking frontline stalemates. We have to adapt to, to that wind. Yeah. Yes. So it, a former German soldier who asked to stay anonymous is instructing the unit. How transformational have drones been for Ukraine? 
uh, already it was clear in 2015 that it's gonna be in Rome War. Meaning not like the you know the, the Reaper level, you know, drop and war, drones, yeah. but uh, tactical drones for all kinds of purposes. I think I lost count how many drones we were put in here. Yeah. <laughs> Anti-drone kit. Taking down drones very, very far away. So you use it as a defend defense against drones. That's a serious looking jammer. If you provide supplies or logistics pipeline, you've got to be able, there's got to be some organization to it, right? You know, the surprise isn't that, oh, all this stuff isn't getting there. The surprise is that people actually expected it to. We're here in the uh, evacuation. Andy Milburn is a U.S. Marine veteran. Unsatisfied with what he felt was a too hands-off approach from the U.S., he made his way to Kiev after the invasion to train frontline soldiers. I can tell you, unarguably, that on the frontline units, these things are not getting there, all right? Um, drones, uh, switchblades, IFACs, they're not, all right? Um, body armor, helmets, you name it. Is, is it safe to characterize this as a little bit of a, a black hole? I, I, I suppose if you don't have visibility of where this stuff is going and if you're asking that question, then it would appear that it's a black hole, yeah. Are you concerned about weapons getting into the wrong hands? I don't care at all whether that happens. Of course it's going to happen. It happens in any... T I mean, if you, if you don't have guys here supervising the pipeline, but that's not my biggest concern. My biggest concern right now is that the guys who need to kill Russians with those weapons get those weapons. We're seeing this incredible historic flow of weapons coming into Ukraine from, from the West, from the US and NATO countries. Do we have any sense as to where they're going? We don't know. Uh, there is really no information as to where they're going uh, at all. What is more worrying is that at least some of the countries that are sending weapons do not seem to think that it is their responsibility to put in place a very robust oversight mechanism to ensure that they know how they're being used today, but also how they might and will be used tomorrow. Is it appropriate for us to be asking these questions in, in, in a state of emergency? You have a country that has been invaded by a larger neighboring force. Whatever it takes to survive seems to be the name of the game. It's not just that it is appropriate to ask this question. It is absolutely necessary to ask those questions because if we look back, we have so many different examples in Afghanistan, Libya, Iraq, and the situations where weapons that are meant for one purpose at a particular time end up going elsewhere, being used for other purposes. When ISIS took over Mosul in 2014, they you know, came into possession of large amounts of new, sophisticated weapons that US forces had left for the Iraqi forces. Mm -hmm. But you know, Iraqi forces lost control of the city, ran away, and, and all that fell into the hands uh, of ISIS. During a Department of Defense briefing in July 2022, a senior military official said that the U.S. is not tracking weapons, but are confident military aid is being used to combat Russian forces. And on July 19th, it was reported that Ukraine created a temporary special commission to track the flow of weapons into the country. I would call it incoherent policy, all right? If we are, if United States policy is to support Ukraine in, its, in the defense of its country against the Russian Federation, you can't go halfway with that. You, you see what I'm saying? You can't, you can't create artificial lines, and I would challenge anyone to say otherwise. We're either in or we're not. We're now in the heart of the Donbass region, which is the most heavily contested part of Ukraine. And following the convoy here, is particularly unnerving because they've been asking for anti-drone equipment, which tells you that there are drones in the sky. Clearly within artillery range as well. Um, so we probably shouldn't stay here for any longer than we need to. 
We are in the middle of nowhere. This is just Donbass. Who the f does such a thing? <laughs> it's just, you know, it makes no sense whatsoever. Whatsoever. One of the big questions uh, moving forward is, will there be a long-running Ukrainian insurgency in areas held by the Russians? Uh, and I think the answer to that is probably yes. But it depends what territories the Russians hold, how many of the Ukrainians that are in those territories stay. But you could still see partisans, Ukrainian units of one sort or another, infiltrating across the border into Russia-occupied territories to make any continuing Russian occupation costly and bloody. As we fuel Ukraine with so much of this, isn't there a danger that we're just creating the next insurgency, the next failed state? That's one of the reasons we have to win the war. I mean, if we lose the war, if we have this kind of gray zone, semi-failed state scenario or something like that, that's why we've got to win. If you do this, you funnel lots of leave the resource into place and lose, uh, then you will have to, to, to face the consequences. You can find more of John Stone's work, daily writings about the end of illusions, online at CaitlinJohnstone.com. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.